A reading from the book of Mark. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please, uh, please remain standing. Heavenly Father, we commend this time to you. Uh, we pray that uh, your spirit would illumine the sacred text, that we would pay careful attention to it, that we would be both hearers and doers of your word. Uh, we recognize that our hearts are naturally stubborn, and so we ask that your spirit work in us in this time as we give our attention to your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Oh. So I'm going to do myself a favor. I'm gonna, I don't know. You know how like that like smaller stand? But I don't get that today. I don't know. Here we are. So I, I'm going to use this big chunky one. Well, good morning. Uh, it's really great to be with you as we study God's word and uh, Mama's happy Mother's Day. Um, so if you are new with us today, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, we're currently in a series on the Gospel of Mark. Today we're in chapter 5. And... Um, this morning, we just heard for us, read uh, one of those stories that sometimes, if we're honest, we're a little bit 
embarrassed. That's it. It's in the Bible, right? Um, you know, if you know much about the gospel of Mark, uh, you know, and we've said this before, that uh, John Mark, the author, is very economical, very efficient with how he tells stories. And yet, here in chapter 5, for this really uncomfortable story, he's like slow dancing with it a little bit. You know, for 20 verses, which is like comparatively very long for Mark, uh, he is getting into the details. And so we have to ask the question, like, why is he slowing down? For this story, demon possession, exorcisms, suicidal pigs, uh, supernatural strength. I mean, this is kind of a, a story that modern, scientific, learned people really don't like to take too seriously. Um, you know, it's interesting, the famous uh, British philosopher Bertrand Russell he actually cites this particular story in his book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And he says, this is why I couldn't possibly believe in Christianity. Because he's recalling like this, the 2,000 pigs running off a cliff. And he says, what a waste. That could have been good bacon, right? Uh, so he denies all of it. So we're going to look at that here in a moment. But let me just say at the outset, like, I get it. I get it. Um, this is a lot to swallow. But if you listen closely, if you will pay attention, this story will surprise you. John Mark, the author, is incredibly interested in teaching you more about Jesus. But you have to listen willingly. Suspend your judgment. Let, let this story and the details work on your heart. You know, the story was written 2,000 years ago, and, and John Mark is writing to a culture with very different beliefs, very different presuppositions about the nature of reality. It assumes, the story, it assumes a certain worldview, a certain vision of the world. You know, if you look at this text preached in like in the first five centuries, early preachers did not have to write apologetics about spiritual and demonic forces because everyone, Christians or non-Christians, everyone believed in this stuff, right? But now, as modern readers, sometimes we need to explain some of this so that we can understand the meaning of this text. So I hope to get to some of that as we interact with the text. But now, part of the modern-day skepticism with, um, and, and I'll just acknowledge this, the, the skepticism with demonic and spiritual forces is really due to the irresponsible way that a lot of Christians have handled this stuff, right? Uh, you will find in certain traditions people blaming the devil, right, for every single bad thing that has happened or whatever. It's interesting with, re, with um, reference to like satanic activities, um, C.S. Lewis, he says, he goes, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can, can fall about devils. One is disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So there's two ways to mess this up, right? One ignores it, and the other obsesses and, and puts this unhealthy focus. Um, now, it's worth mentioning as we study this passage Clearly, this kind of thing did not happen regularly, not even in the first century, all right? It wasn't like just normal in the first century. Um, it's not normal now, 
It wasn't normal back then either. Uh, that's how come it's included in the gospel, right? They put very uh, unique things, unique things in the story. That's what they include, not the ordinary things, like making breakfast every morning. That's not included in the gospels, but they did it, right? Now, exorcisms were really rare, and it's precisely because they were unique that we're, that we're going to focus on it and why Mark focuses on it. Most people lived their entire lives without, overt, without contact with overt demon possession, all right? So this morning, we're going to allow this text to speak to us on its own terms. And again, let me say it, suspend your judgment about whatever you might think about suicidal pigs, right? Because I know it's hard. And even if we do want to take this seriously, I mean, the question you might even have is what relevance could a story like this have for modern people? That's a great question. That's an important question. Mark wrote this, included this story, hoping that you will read it and understand the true nature of reality, the one that you and I are currently living in, and more than that, to see and understand Jesus who's presented in the story. Now, how are we going to do that this morning? We'll have three points. We're going to examine this in three sections. For you note-takers, we're going to look at the nature of evil, and then we're going to look at the depth of deliverance, and then our last point is the juxtaposition of the healing. So nature of evil, depth of deliverance, juxtaposition of healing. Let's begin with the first eight verses, the nature of evil, this first section. Now, if you uh, were a part of... Um, the original audience who received uh, the Gospel of Mark, you would have been alarmed at the description that Mark includes. So right away, Mark tells us that they went to the east side of the Galilee, which is called the Gerasenes. So this is Gentile country. This is pagan country. A good Jew would not hang out in that region, much less someone claiming to be the king. Strike one. To make matters worse, in verse 2, it says, the moment that Jesus took one step off of the boat, he is standing among tombs. It's a catacombs of sorts. So he gets off the, t- off the boat, boom, tombs. According to Jewish law, that act alone makes someone unclean, unfit to worship. Strike two. And then, of course, we learn in verse 11 that this area doubled as a feeding grounds for 2,000 pigs, which is totally off-putting for Jews, for a good Jew anyway. Pigs were considered unclean animals, which means they will make you unclean if you're around them. Strike three. Everything about this scene is already absolutely horrifying, and it all comes from one step off the boat. And the action hasn't even started yet. As soon as their feet hit this unclean region, they are met by an unclean man. What makes him unclean? He is demon-possessed. The supernatural forces have so overwhelmed him, no one could tame him, right? Not even with chains. He has been abandoned. Night and day he is moaning, He cuts himself, condemning him to a solitary life. It's like his community is giving up on him and sending him to the loony bin, right? They don't want his problems. He is 
living death. In these first eight verses, Mark is explicit in explaining the supernatural and demonic roots of this man's affliction. Describing him like the super strong Marvel villain like Thanos or something is really important to the agenda that Mark has for us. And here's why. Mark really wants you to believe in evil. Does that sound a little bit obvious? If you screen out the the spiritual aspect to this man's problem, you will strip this account of its power to help you understand the world and yourself. You know, maybe you have like a tendency to retort, you know, this is, this is uh, high schoolers, this is the kind of thing y'all would be inclined to do. You know, like, you know, the, the Bible writers were very pre-modern and superstitious. Uh, they don't know science like we know science. Clearly, right, this man has a mental or emotional disorder, right? That's easy enough. If you dismiss this so casually, you'll never understand yourself or the world. And let me explain. The way we diagnose problems will shape the solutions we believe are fit for the problem. Right? Every doctor knows that. The way you diagnose it is going to shape your solution. If you diagnose every problem exclusively in human and naturalistic or humanistic uh, categories, you will lose. You will walk in this world naive, a time bomb. So consider this this tormented man. We, We can look at him and say, well, sociologically, he was alienated from his community. Perhaps it was poverty, and it created, you know, certain social pathologies, and so what does he need? Education, right? Well, well this man had a, a dysfunctional, he had dysfunctional family systems. Maybe he had daddy issues, right? Not mommy issues. You ladies are perfect today. Maybe he had daddy issues. What does he need? Counseling, right? Yeah, so clearly this man had a chemical imbalance. Probably his serotonin and dopamine levels were out of whack. What does he need? Medication. When we dismiss the spiritual realities of this universe and view everything through naturalistic lenses, the best we can respond with is education, counseling, and medication. Really? Is that all that Hitler needed? I mean, it probably would have helped a little. But is that it? Education, counseling, medication? I mean, if we could flood the world with those three things, would it fix all of our problems? If you believe that, you're absolutely cheapening the suffering of so many people. And worse, you don't understand the world. You won't be able to help anyone. Why? Because evil is real. Because no matter how much you want to be modern and scientific about stuff, you cannot escape the reality that this world is brimming with spirituality and not all of it is good. Don't cheapen the really sad and evil things that are happening in the world by by reducing it to sociology and psychology and biology. 
Now, those things are important. And it's important that we're excellently thinking about those things. But they don't explain everything. And if you deny true evil, real evil, you are willingly turning a blind eye under this elitist guise of being a modern, educated person. That's not the real world. Because the real world has evil, you see. Now, once you come to the conclusion that evil is real, now your response will be less naive. Our solutions won't be less than sociological or or, or psychological or biological in its orientation, but we won't put all of our eggs in that basket, right? Because if you do, you'll fail. You'll never get better. What this world needs, what you need, what this man needed was a spiritual intervention by a savior. That's what he gets. Now, I, 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 listen, I know that most of you are not possessed by demons, and I say most. That's a joke, all right? Everyone relax. Um, you aren't possessed by demons, but, but this poor man in Mark 5 honestly was just on the far end of a continuum. And we're somewhere on this continuum too. And therefore, we need an intervention with Jesus. Listen, when your child misbehaves and you don't pray for their hard-heartedness, you've been assimilated. If you've experienced addiction, whether it's sexual or substance or behavioral addiction, and you have no impulse to pray, you've been assimilated, right? You have naively diagnosed the problem, right? Because the problem is not just your kid's carb intake. The problem isn't just your upbringing. Yes, it's not less than those things, but don't you dare think that you can seek out change without an intervention with Christ. Now, this isn't This is not finding a devil behind every rock, but it is deeply appreciating the fact that the flesh, the world, and the devil are in this conspiracy to destroy us, and we dare not ignore it under the guise of being modern. Because if you do, you'll have no victory. You won't overcome these things. Mark's telling of this man's story is not fanciful. It's sober. It's extreme, I know. I know, that's why it was included. It was an extreme one, but don't you dare scoff at it. It is more competent. Mark 5 is more competent at describing reality than our modern explanations. So let's not be naive about supernatural evil. This text most certainly is not. So that's the first part of this story. It teaches us to appreciate the nature of evil. Now let's look at the depth of deliverance, this next section that you see in verses 9 through 13. So in the first section where it ends, it says in verse 6 that this man like runs to Jesus and falls before him. That's what it says in in verse 6. What's happening there? That is a posture of worship. This guy's coming on his knees. And what ensues is very complex dialogue. Without Jesus even introducing himself to the amazement of the disciples, this man already knows Jesus. Verse 7, 
What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? He knows titles and everything. Now, sometimes when this man speaks, he speaks with singular pronouns and sometimes with plural ones. He says, for instance, he says, what do you want with me? Don't torture me. But then he goes on to say, he says, my name is Legion. We, plural pronoun, we are many. Send us to the pigs. So John Mark is carefully recording this dialogue to show that there are these two forces that are acting on this man. It's important to note that this is actually the only time that Jesus ever asks for the name of a demon. And, they, and he says, I am legion. Apparently, there are a lot of demons in this one man. Now that, that detail is highly political. Uh, you know what a Roman centurion is? If you don't, it's like a soldier who is um, in charge of roughly 100 other Roman soldiers. Well, a legion is the Roman nomenclature for 6,000 soldiers. And the 2,000 pigs nearby in the area are food for the Roman soldiers who are stationed in the Decapolis area, right, in that region. Now, to this point, there are these really interesting, contrasting things. On one hand, this man is like really strong, breaking chains, and yet he himself has no control. In spite of his strength, he is absolutely controlled by these spirits. But on the other hand, for as strong as are these legion of demons, they pale in comparison to Jesus. Like, they literally need consent, and they're ordered to vacate the man, and it happens, no contest. Jesus sends them into the pigs, who immediately run off a cliff and are drowned. And it says in verse 15, this man is left clothed and in his right mind. So he's fully restored. Like, what just happened? Like, what are all these details about? This is a really important pattern, or there's actually several that are emerging from this story. And, and, and again, the author wants you to pay attention because he expects you to have an encounter with Jesus as well. How? Well, the first part of this man's healing was that he recognized Jesus for who he is. Jesus, the son of the most high. Jesus is not a guru. He's not your inspirational leader. He is your king. And just as this man understood, you must understand his authority. Jesus was not a footnote on this man's life. He was literally this man's life. This man has no life, no hope, only self-destruction, cutting. Apart from Jesus, that is his story. This man cannot live without Jesus. It's the first pattern. There's a second pattern that emerges. Mark tells this story in order to help us, under, uh, help us to recognize evil for what it is. So this man recognizes that either Jesus controls you or something else will. Now, maybe you're not possessed by demons, but everyone seeks something. Whatever it is, right? Comfort, sexual fulfillment, 
success with your children, health, whatever it is. What are you, what are you seeking? That's your Lord. And those things, however innocent they might seem, like pigs, they destroy whatever they touch. See, listen, what you see with those pigs, the pigs immediately received the full and instant purpose of those demons. They just got to see how the story ends very quickly. What happened to those pigs is what happens when idols take over. Maybe it takes a little bit longer, but that's the trajectory. That man was spared that destruction, but it was most certainly his trajectory. And one of the reasons why we want to hang on to these false lords and idols is because we think that the Lord wants to harm us. You remember like the man's first reaction when he encountered Jesus? He says in verse 7, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Like swear to me that you won't torment me, verse 7. Now think about it, like the, the Lord of life, the Lord of love is there. And the demons have led this man to believe that Jesus is there to hurt him. Not the demons, Jesus, that's what Jesus is doing. He's the one who hurts. Y'all, this is the most precise and prevalent lie that modern Christians have bought into. We believe that we can't be both holy and happy, that you've got to choose. Why? Why do we believe that? Because we can't trust Jesus. We can't trust the Lord of life to not torment us. Right? Like, like Lord, if, if I think about my sex life the way you think about it, I'm going to miss out. Like, if I disciple my kids in this deep, profound, sacrificial way, in your way, Lord, then I'm going to lose my life. I relate to my money and generosity the way you would, then I'm not going to Get the things that truly will make me happy. I know how this ends, Lord. Like if I think about my body, my gender, the way that you think about it, then I don't, I'm not going to be fully me. I know how this ends, Lord. Lord, don't torment me. Like we don't talk like that, but that's what's happening. Listen, it's a lie. All of it. So the first pattern is that you recognize Jesus for who he is, but that second one is that you recognize evil for what it is. Evil will destroy you. It won't make you comfortable. It will lie to you and make you think that you can't be both happy and holy. That's recognizing evil for what it is. And then this last pattern is Jesus' sheer authority and ability to help you and to defeat evil. And this is really important because I've kind of noticed that our vision of God is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, in the last hundred years, there's kind of been a, I don't know, a weird treatment of like end times stuff. Uh, one particular thing that sticks out is like the battle of Armageddon from like Revelation 16. You'll kind of hear about it in certain, has anyone ever studied the battle of Armageddon? So like certain people, will depict Armageddon, Armageddon as if like there's like Satan and his minions on one side and then you have like uh, the Lord God and his angels on another side, kind of like the Philistines and, um, and the Israelites. And then they have like this really hard fought war. You know, it's like Carmen, that song, The Champion, anyone? Okay, 
All right, there's a few of you, right? It's like this hard-fought war, but in the end, like God, like he pulls through. Listen, that is such bad theology. There is no competition. There is no war. God just blinks. He just sneezes, and Satan and his demons are gone. God and Satan are not equals. This isn't like yin and yang. God's authority is absolute and perfect. And it's important to notice that everything that this entire legion of demons does in our text is at the consent of Jesus. A legion of demons tremble. A legion of demons tremble at the words of the Lord of redemption. And so what's the point? You must recognize Jesus's power. You must recognize Jesus' power because if you don't, you won't go to him. Like you won't go to him thinking that he can help you. You won't go to him thinking that he can save you. You'll start your own self-salvation project and it won't work. Jesus has authority and power over all evil, whether in the world and by the devil or in your flesh. You and I must recognize all of this, and you run to him, believing that he can save you. And listen, I mean run to him for your marriage, for your screwed up family, for your secret addiction, for your bad decisions, for your guilt, all of it. Like run to him, like recognize his power, recognize Jesus for who he is, recognize evil for what it is, recognize Jesus's power, run to him. Him like this man did and fall on your knees. Now we're at our final section of this text. So we looked at the nature of evil, the depth of deliverance, but now Mark is going to show us this juxtaposition of healing. So what follows now is a little bit counterintuitive so these men were keeping watch, the, the, you know, the herdsmen, as you see in verse 14, they're keeping watch of the, the pigs, and they see the entire event. They see this whole thing happen. And so they run into the city, and like they tell everyone about it. It's a miracle, right? Isn't it a miracle? I mean, this man who was completely dehumanized and untamable, he's restored. The image of demons is now replaced with the image of God in this man. I mean, and what did this inspire in the hearts of the people who would hear this story? Verse 15, it says they were afraid. Like, what? Yeah, verse 17 says they begged Jesus to leave. Like, what's that about? You would think that they want him around. Here's the problem. The healing of this man hit them in their pocketbooks. It hit them in something that they loved more than they loved this enslaved man. His healing threatened them. You're starting to see the juxtaposition here? I mean, because what if the power that let loose in this man started being let loose in the lives of the whole city? They don't want it. You know, the theologian David Garland, he recounts the story of Calvin Stowe. So Stowe was a Christian minister who preached against slavery in England. 
as a sort of frame of reference, his wife Harriet Beecher Stowe is the one who authored the very famous novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. So there's a story that at one particular rally in England, it's on anti-slavery day, he told the crowds that although they were successful abolitionists, they were still hypocrites. I mean, they were proud that, that they ended slavery in England, but they purchased 80% of their cotton from the slaves um, in the cotton fields of uh, the United States. And he said, listen, slavery would die in America if you stopped buying their cheap cotton. And so he says to the crowd, he says, are you willing to sacrifice one penny of your profits to end slavery? The crowd booed. It hit them in their pocketbooks. It hit them in something that they loved more than they loved slaves. Men and women who are made in the image of God. Kind of like this man. So you would think that the healing of this demon-possessed man would awaken their love for Jesus. It did the exact opposite. It made them afraid. The crowds were afraid to give up what possessed them. In our lives, we see both sides of this, right? Like when you gave your life to Jesus, like when Jesus started to possess you instead of the train wreck that you were formerly living, how did your family and your friendship group receive it? I mean, did they just celebrate all the good decisions that you were making? Or... Did they start looking at you a little bit weird as if you're like a crazy fanatic? I mean, did your new faith like complicate some of your relationships? It often does because there's this juxtaposition of the healing that you receive. Like people are afraid of it, right? They're afraid of what it means for them. Can y'all see that? Or perhaps you're actually on the other side of it. Someone you love really starts falling in love with Jesus, and they start wanting to make hard and sacrificial decisions to follow Jesus. And what do you do? Do you say, hey, no, no, it's good. It's good. Right, go to church. Like, it's good to follow Jesus, but don't be crazy. Right? Stay balanced. That's the kind of language we use because we're good, proper people. Stay balanced. Right? If you find yourself talking like that, you're possessed by something, and it might not be a demon, but it most certainly is an idol. Can you guys see the relevance of this ancient story? Don't blow it off. I know the details are harrowing, but God wants to instruct you and help you see what Jesus is up to. So this story helps us to see the nature of evil, the deliverance of the depth of deliverance that Christ offers and this juxtaposition of healing. So if you'll let me, let me just make one final observation and then we will go to the Lord's table. So in verse one, we see that Jesus directs his disciples to drive their boat a long way off course only to arrive at a horror scene, right? They step off and they encounter this one man this one man who could care less about Jesus. He's not looking for Jesus. He's done nothing except get run over by demons. 
And there, and then within just a few minutes or a very short period of time, in verse 18, Jesus is already getting back on the boat with his guys and heading back. Like, what's this all about? I mean, why the long trip? All the logistics and the travel. I mean, why not camp there for a little while? I don't know. Do like a, like a Billy Graham evangelism campaign or something. I don't know. Why not? What's this all about? It's about this. Prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. I want you to know this doctrine, and I want you to bury it deep in your heart because, listen to me, if you can get this, it will change your life forever. Listen, you know, Jesus, as I walked with, or the disciples, as I walked with Jesus, they were, Jesus was always teaching them things. They were always learning from him. I mean, they had heard that parable about the shepherd who left the 99 sheep to go and get the one and to find him. But this time, there's no story. Jesus looks at his guys and says, hey, man, let's hop in the boat. We got somewhere to go. Oh, yeah, Jesus? Like someone, someone expecting us? Nope. It's in fact the opposite. But there is this man who I love. He doesn't know me but I know him, and I will do anything to go and have this man in my family. We got somewhere to go. And in fact, Jesus did everything to have him. That's where Mark is taking us in this gospel. Jesus will not just go to the garrisons, but he will go to a cross, and he will hang there and restore this man forever. Grace comes first. This man's story, Denver Prez, is our story. We're possessed by something, but Jesus loves you, man. And he will go as far as it takes to have you. He's our Savior. He's our King. I hope you encounter him through Mark 5. Amen. Amen.